This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode is part of a long series about the rise of Christian fundamentalism through the Scopes Monkey Trial. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. And now that I've finished the main body of the season, and I'm working hard on Season 6, I want to emphasize some important themes. This is takeaway number one. How do we deal with heresy? Based on what you know about the Bible, how often do you think it says the phrase, God is love? Not a reference to the love of God or when it says God loves somebody or something, just the phrase, God is love. In the NIV, the phrase comes up twice. New King James, two times. The regular King James, yeah, you guessed it, two times. The Living Bible as well, and the New American Standard breaks with convention, it has three, adding 1 John 4, 7. So does the Amplified Version. In the whole Bible, two or three times, depending on the translation. I think that's fascinating. Because when I get into conversations with people who are wrestling with big questions, inevitably the phrase, God is love, is caught up in it. If God is love, why do bad things happen? Or how can you say that God doesn't respect all belief systems? The Bible says God is love. Those are the discussions that rarely go anywhere. We usually get caught up in a bit of a morass, a swamp of an argument that we'll never get out of. Whether the translation says it appears twice or three times, all of them, all of the references, are in the same book of the Bible. Not only that, they're in the same chapter, 1 John chapter 4. Now, that may seem trivial, but it's actually really important. Because yeah, we can take verses out of context and put them on coffee mugs and t-shirts, Instagram accounts, but the real power comes in seeing verses in their context, what comes before and what comes after. 1 John says a lot about love, but that's hardly all. This book, just a few pages in my Bible, is oddly relevant to our discussion of modernism and fundamentalism from this season, and possibly how we move forward as a people. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. First John is an interesting book. It's short, and that's always fun. But it's also written to refute this specific heresy that was going around in the early church, or group of heresies, all bundled under the word Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word for knowledge, which is important because Gnostics, well, they thought they had something a little bit extra, you know, the inside scoop. One of the big beliefs they had was this idea of dualism, that the spirit, the soul inside all of us, is separate from our body. Our body is not quite us, and it's possibly evil. They thought that this present world is, as one author put it, utterly alien to the supreme God and to goodness. Since this world that we live in, work in, shop in, love in, is far removed from God, we have no responsibility here. This is where the body lives. It's not where our soul calls home. We don't owe anything to each other or to the government or to our neighbors. And because nothing is easy, this manifested in two distinct ways. One group went all in with strict rules, including no marriage or procreation, and some nasty mortification of the flesh stuff. The other and less popular group said, eh, we'll go the other way. Anything goes. And they became famous for their let's say, group adult activities. After all, Paul told us that God forgives our sins, so why not just live la vida loca? Both groups fall under this title of Gnosticism. This idea, where pieces of it may or may not predate Christ, was seen by authors of the New Testament as a threat. Because this new faith, Christianity, this belief in the God-man crucified and risen again, sent out lots of teachers like the guys in the book of Acts, going from city to city and telling people about the gospel. Well, they weren't the only ones evangelizing. So were the Gnostics. So, when you get to 1 John 1, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the very first chapter, it's talking about sin and the need for forgiveness of sin which the Gnostics wouldn't have seen as necessary, because to them, it's the body that sins, not the soul. The next verse calls them out on this. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Boom. Chapter 1 comes out swinging. Then there's chapter 2. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Like, you know, the commandments against sexual immorality that one group was up to. It straight up uses the word liar. Then it refers to those Gnostic evangelists as antichrists. The early church had a serious problem. They had this 
good news of Christ who died and was resurrected to take away the sins of those who repent and believe. I mean, great news. And someone was going out there and undermining them. Not only that, but leading people astray. That's in 1 John, the only book in the English language Bible that contains the phrase, God is love. And it's calling out heresy. Does that make some of us uncomfortable? I thought it might. In our modern pluralistic society, it can seem harsh to say something is true and something is a lie, especially when it comes to a person's religious beliefs. So some of us want to try to take every belief system, every idea from Mormonism to Buddhism, all of it, and squeeze it together and say it's Christianity or the equivalent. The writers of the Bible would not have agreed. Do you know who else had to struggle with heresy? The proto-fundamentalists. Do you remember the beginning of the season when I mentioned the 1873 Evangelical Alliance meeting? Evangelicals from around the world gathered together to discuss the issues of their time. Delegates from Germany spoke up about the rising tide of theological modernism. People in supposedly Christian colleges taught that Jesus isn't divine, that a bunch of the books of the Bible aren't authoritative, and they straight up took pieces out of the Bible. In 1873, Americans got a warning from their German brothers. This heresy is coming. How will you deal with it? I think that deserves a thought experiment. And I'd like to open this up to you as well, to hear your thoughts. Find Truce on social media or email me your thoughts at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. I may read them on the show. If you could transport yourself back in time to 1873 and you heard about this growing movement of modernist theology, what would you do? While I wait for your thoughts, here are some of mine. I decided to look for answers in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The books of God is Love. The first steps seem to be identify false teachers. There are a few ways to do this. One that we've already covered. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. We can identify false teachers by whether or not they keep the commands. By the way, this is true of people who claim all sorts of theology. As we've seen in recent years, false teachers might sound like they're theologically super conservative and then have a terrible anger problem or sexual immorality hidden just beneath the surface. We've encountered this in the news a bunch in the last few years. That's one way of identifying false teachers. Here's another. Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. An Antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ and or that he is God's Son or denies Jesus' divinity. This is where we get into some harsh realities of certain types of modernism. Remember guys like Schleiermacher didn't believe in Jesus' divinity. In fact, they taught against it. I covered Schleiermacher in the episode titled The Liberals. To be fair, he probably wouldn't have seen the books of John as authoritative either. I mean, who wants to believe the books of the Bible that contradict their own opinions? 
So according to 1 John, we can spot false teachers by whether or not their lives reflect the commandments and by their acceptance or denial of Jesus' divinity. For an evangelical around the year 1900, this would have been cause enough to label modernism as a heresy, a credible threat. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God gave concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. With the author of 1 John as our guide, the answer to this thought experiment, in my estimation, starts with identifying the false teachers, understanding the threat, and calling it out. But what do you do when you meet someone who teaches otherwise? 2 John has the answer. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Identify heresy, educate people, and separate from heretics. But there is a key concept missing, the piece that brings all of this together. In 1 John chapter 4, the chapter where it says two or three times that God is love, well, we rarely put it into its context. The purpose of the chapter isn't to say love is whatever you want it to be. Instead, it's that since God loved us, we should love other believers. 1 John 4, 7-8 Beloved, let's love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That concept of God is love that we covered from the top of the show is directly tied to us loving other Christians. Remember, not just people who call themselves Christians, because the previous chapter went to great lengths to draw some lines. This love each other part is for followers of Jesus. This is something that evangelicals around 1900 really struggled to do. I think that loving our brothers and sisters was a stumbling block that helped create fundamentalism. Because remember, even before fundamentalism, evangelicalism was divided into these little fiefdoms. Then some of them started following what would become D.L. Moody's model, where a preacher went from ministering to a brand with books, newspapers, schools, and, later, radio. They became media empires. And yes, there were efforts to unite. Moody himself tried to unite people. But it got really hard for the different fiefdoms to work together, especially with the rise of dispensationalism, where they expected the Big C Church to decline into heresy. They were maybe a little bit paranoid. We humans have a propensity to extremism. Rather than go somewhere in the middle, we hang out at the far left or the far right. Another problem we get into when fighting heresy is overcorrection. We get so far away from the heretics that we also block out godly people, other strong, God-fearing Christ followers who may differ in only slight ways. Denominationalism does that, but so do our silos including our media silos. The fundamentalists and proto-fundamentalists really needed to strengthen their idea of unity with other Christ-following believers. The siloed approach really didn't work.
that's what I've arrived at with my thought experiment. But I really would like to hear from you. If you were at the meeting of the Evangelical Alliance in 1873, what would you have done? Record a voice memo on your cell phone and send it to trucepodcast at yahoo.com, or you can write me an email or contact me via social media. I may use your responses on the show. And before I go, I want to take a second to acknowledge the modernists who listen to this show. I know there are at least a few, because it might be shocking to hear me calling out your belief system. I don't mean to harm you. I just want to be honest about something. When my brother and I were in college, we had a lot of modernist friends. Our school is in what's now known as the Burned Over District of upstate New York. After Charles Finney and Joseph Smith and the Oneida community, the whole region struggled to believe in any one thing. Instead, a kind of buffet-style spirituality took hold. A little from this religion, a little from that. We actually visited a Methodist church one Sunday where they started late, then had a Native American get up and talk about his religion. And that was the whole service. No sermon, no music. They didn't even like compare and contrast his religion with Christianity. That was it. Our friends there were a little confused by our belief in what the Bible has to say. That we stuck with the Bible despite changing times and competing notions. How could we say that one belief system was more right than another. We responded, hopefully in love, that if you pick and choose what you're going to believe, like it's a salad bar, a little of this, a little of that, the one religion in the whole world that you can be 100% sure is made up is your own. Because you know definitively that you made it up. The joy of the Bible is knowing that the standard is outside of us. It's ancient tested, and good. It sounds maybe harsh to equate modernism with Gnosticism, but they both reject the Bible's ideas about what is sin, and they both deny the deity of Christ. I want to encourage you to take a look at the full picture of Christ in the Bible. Not only is he a good teacher, because he is a good teacher, but he's also our Savior. For those of us who believe Let's learn from the mistakes of early fundamentalists and modernists. Let's believe Jesus, identify false teachers, distance ourselves from heretics, and have unity with brothers and sisters who avoid sin and trust Jesus. We ought to love one another because, well, because God himself is love. Special thanks to my brother Nick Steren for being a good sounding board, and for my small group for walking through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Thanks also to everyone who made this season possible with your prayers and financial support. If you'd like to help, visit trucepodcast.com donate. This is not a normal episode of Truce with my normal experts and usual edits. It's a little preachy, and I'm okay with that. For the next few weeks, I'll be presenting some takeaways from the season in bonus episodes like this one. As you listen to this, I'm hard at work on season six. Once again, I'm starting from scratch and it's going to take me a few months to get it ready. So I'll be putting out some of these little bonuses in the meantime. Subscribe so you get every new episode as it's released. Rate and review the show on your podcasting app. And if you're a writer, a publisher, a podcaster, or a blogger, and you want to help Truce, consider covering the show in your publication. I am often available for an interview. God willing, we'll talk again in two weeks. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.